Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're covering the Come Follow Me lesson for April 13th through 19th, 2020. This is covering Mosiah chapters 1 through 3. And now, let me introduce the star of the show, the Scriptures. Oh, hello, Scriptures. Man, it's great to see them. Look at and, you. And uh, le- now let's check in with the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. I can't wait to find out. 26 minutes, 13 seconds. That's great. Excellent. You notice that they uh, try to keep the reading around about a half an hour a week. That is so doable. It really is. Uh, for those of you keeping score at home, that's really less than five minutes every day. And if you don't have less than five minutes every day to dedicate to the Lord and his word, um, you need to reevaluate things. I sneeze more than five minutes a day. (laughs) Yeah, especially as spring's coming on. (laughs) All right. So let's dive in. Here we are at Mosiah. What can you tell us, Jay? Well, this is an exciting time. We're getting back to Mormon's abridgment. First Nephi through Omni has all been in the first person from the small plates. Words of Mormon has created a transition from our narrator, Mormon. And so let me give you uh, just a, a situation. Many of you may have seen the Book of Mormon in eight minutes video. If so, this will be review. We'll start with the promised land. We've got Mulek having landed in the north and Lehi having landed in the south. If this is all feeling foreign to you, go ahead and watch the uh, Book of Mormon in eight minutes. It'll bring you up to speed. This is the the way it was. We had uh, Nephites and Lamanites in the south. We had Mulek in and his descendants in the north. And for about 450 years, this was going on. Now, between the Nephites and Lamanites, as years went on and and aggressions continued between those two nations, warfare, and the Nephites continued to fall away from the Lord. There was a man chosen by the Lord named Mosiah who led those that would follow the Lord in an exodus out of that land. They went down into the Sidon River Valley and there discovered the people of Zarahemla, who were the descendants of Mulek. For reasons that you can go back and look at in Omni, they made Mosiah their king. And um, while he was establishing this kingdom of Nephites and uh, Mulekites, or or, uh, the people of Zarahemla, there were those who were interested in going back to try to reclaim the land that they lost that was taken by the Lamanites. We'll talk in more detail about this, but the short version is that a man named Zenith took a considerable number, Omni references him, and came down to the land of Nephi to reclaim that land. The king of the land gave them the city of Nephi plus some other land. And while they're there, we now have two Nephite nations. That's the important part of this information. We'll explore what happened with them later. But for now, we've got the Nephites in the north, and we've got this new group of Nephites, the people with Zenith, who have arrived in the south and have a small portion of their lands back. These two stories are going to be running parallel. King Mosiah will eventually give his kingdom to King Benjamin, who will fight. We talked about this last time in Words of Mormon, work with the prophets, unite the people, and eventually prepare to what we're going to talk about here in Mosiah, preach to the people at the end of his life on the tower in the temple. But while that has been going on in the south, we had Zenith get done with his kingship, turn the kingship over to his son, 
Noah. This is the wicked King Noah uh, that you may be familiar with. The whole thing with one of his priests, Alma, with Abinadi preaching and them eventually killing Abinadi. Alma and his converts fled. The Lamanites came in. King Noah gets killed. The Lamanites put his people in bondage. And Limhi now is the king of this group in bondage. Abinadi has been killed. Alma is now off on his own with his people. All of that has already taken place by the time King Benjamin stands on the tower at the temple to preach this message to his people. So that helps so to set the stage. So it seems confusing when you uh, read through the story in Mosiah 7 and onward. It kind of is. Well, and that's all right. We're going to help you with it. It, it is a yeah, flashback. Step through it. But just so you know, those two stories are running in tandem right now. And from the time that King Benjamin gets done with his speech, it's only going to be a few years before a group from Zarahemla travels down to find out what in the world ever happened to those guys from a couple generations before. So they're right at the cusp of where all of this is going to get mixed back up again. Anyway, I hope these visuals mm-hmm. are helpful and uh, that should be what we need to set the stage. Sounds great. So we knew that from the Book of Omni that Mosiah the first, he was, as you'd mentioned, the deliverer. He's the one that, that discovered the, the people of Zarahemla and was appointed the king of, of both nations. Amalekai, who was the last writer in Omni, had made a note of saying in verse 23 that Mosiah I had passed away in his own lifetime. So we know he's already gone. Benjamin is described in words of Mormon as a great warrior, a great warrior king, uh, had wielded the sword of Laban, and uh, mentioned there in verse 13. But what's interesting is most of us know King Benjamin as much more of a peacetime king, as much more of a, a righteous king. And, and what's interesting is we kind of get a little bit of both perspectives here. Now, granted, this is Benjamin at the end of his life, but he has clearly spent his life very close to the Lord, very close to his servants, basically doing the best he can for his people. And uh, we've, we see the results of that. He talks about his three sons at the beginning of uh, Mosiah 1. Yeah, well, let's touch, just to uh, put a cap on what you were saying, or uh, not a cap, a cherry, that uh, right at the beginning he says there's no more contention. Well, was there contention? Well, we'll look back at Words of Mormon and you'll see. There was a lot, but now there is no more. There is a sense that we are coming in. We've talked about this before, but we're kind of coming in in a story that's in progress, I appreciate you bringing that up, Jay. I wanted to remind our viewers that if you have not seen our very first episode, you may not be aware that from the the notes in the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, it would seem clear that the Mosiah that we have, as marked as chapter one, is technically actually chapter three. Yeah, it may and have been originally chapter three. A couple of chapters that were a part of the lost uh, manuscripts early on, that does seem to be the implication. And certainly, just starting Mosiah one, you do kind of feel like you're dropped in the middle of a story that was actually already in progress. Yeah, and if it wasn't for Mormon giving us some info, we'd really be lost. But we get that sense now. Now there is continual peace the remainder of the day. So go ahead with the sons here. Now the verse, yeah, verse 2, just a a mention that he has three sons, uh, Mosiah, Helorum, and Helaman. And he's approaching the end of his life. One of the things that I find fascinating 
is right at the beginning of this chapter, he takes the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, to emphasize the importance of the scriptures. Now, what are the scriptures to these people? Well, these would be the plates of brass that were brought over, that were obtained from Laban and brought over by Nephi. Uh, He says in verse 3 and 4, And he also taught them concerning the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass, saying, My sons, I would that ye should remember that were it not for these plates, which contained these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance, even at this present time, not knowing the mysteries of God. Quick aside there. Not only is he speaking wisely, But he's speaking from experience. Remember, it was his dad that discovered the people of Zarahemla who did not have a scriptural record with them. And they witnessed firsthand what four centuries of not having the scriptures did to them. Now, they were able to reclaim these people, but... Isn't it interesting, though, connecting it back to what he was saying in verse 2, he uses that word again, taught... He taught them in all the language of their fathers, that thereby the reason that they were taught, and I I love this from transferring it from this kingdom to my home, that because he taught them, thereby they might be men of understanding, that they Mm. might know concerning the prophecies. Now, verse 3 goes on to explain that in more and why that's so powerful. But it's our job as parents or as those serving youth to teach them that they might be people of understanding, men and women of understanding, and that wisdom comes from knowing the prophecies. And as you point out in verse 3, otherwise they suffered in ignorance, and they don't get to know the mysteries of God. They don't. There's an old proverb that says, those who do not uh, learn and understand history are doomed to make the same mistakes. Very applicable here. Now, in verse 4, for it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered all these things. I like that line. (laughs) He's making a a clear point here. There's a lot of scriptures here. Now, you know, I have a better memory than the average person. and I've certainly met many savants and others, but I'm sorry. Take a look at the Old Testament. I don't know that anybody has not memorized the whole thing. But that seems like a pretty daunting task. And even then, I wouldn't, for myself, even if I were able to do it, I wouldn't necessarily rely on it. But then that becomes a single point of failure, too. When Lehi passes away, now the scriptures are gone, right? Yeah. For it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered all these things, to have taught them to his children, except it were for the help of these plates. So he's explaining why these plates were important, why the Lord sent Nephi and his sons or Nephi and his brothers, to go get these plates. And why it was so important that he taught his sons to appreciate and to study these scriptures. And I think it's really interesting that we're getting a lot more information about the the plates of brass even than, than Nephi gave us. And this is, you know, four centuries after Nephi. But, uh, you know, they clearly had a lot of information that they handed down from father to son and so forth, and, and to brother, as we discussed in earlier episodes. For he having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings and teach them to his children, that thereby they could teach them to their children, and so fulfilling the commandments of God even down to this present time. Now there's a key phrase there that I find fascinating. The notion that he having been taught in the language of the Egyptians. 
Now, this implies one of two things. One, that the plates of brass were either written in Egyptian, or two, that they were written in Hebrew, but using Egyptian characters or something similar to that. Either way, it's a fascinating notion that these plates of brass would not have been written in Hebrew, as we know the rest of the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament has been written in, but would have been written in a different script. I tend to, just because of the Hebraisms that are preserved in the Book of Mormon, I tend to suspect that they were Hebrew written in Egyptian characters, and there's some that have made cases that this would have been the foundation of a reformed Egyptian language, as, as is described later in the Book of Mormon people. But I should point out that this is very much speculation. It's interesting to, to puzzle out, especially since these little clues have been left in and around the scriptures. So, Exactly, exactly. The phrase, the mysteries of God, we kind of touched on that in a minute in verse 3. I wanted to point out from the Institute Manual, we have a quote from the Doctrine and Covenants commentary by Hiram M. Smith and Jane M. Chojal. And by the way, when John says from the Institute Manual, we talked about this in an earlier episode, but we're talking about the student manual for Book of Mormon Institute. You can get it on your uh, Gospel Library app and on the website. There's a lot more quotes in there than what we're sharing. We just pick out a few, yeah, and there's a lot of really good information in there. So I highly recommend that manual for your Book of Mormon study. If you haven't read it or haven't read it recently, be a good choice. It's really good. But here's a quote from that Doctrine and Covenants commentary. Quote, A mystery is a truth that cannot be known except through divine revelation, a sacred secret. In our day, such great truths as those pertaining to the restoration of the priesthood, the work for the dead, and the reestablishment of the church are, quote, mysteries because they could not have been discovered except by revelation, end quote. So King Benjamin goes on to talk to his sons in verse 5 and says, I say unto you, my sons, were it not for these things, talking about the plates, the scriptures, which have been kept and preserved by the hand of God, that we might read and understand his mysteries. I love that they're in the scriptures. Do you wonder what family scripture study was like for <laughs> King Benjamin? He read so that he could understand the mysteries and have his commandments always before our eyes, that even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief, and we should have been like unto our brethren the Lamanites who know nothing concerning these things or even do not believe them when they are taught them because of the traditions of their fathers which are not correct. And here's another interesting little tidbit for me is that are there things in our life which keep us from understanding or that contribute to our unbelief, traditions, beliefs that we have that are not correct, that keep us back from faith? It's a good question to ask, I think. In verse 7, now, my sons, I would that ye should remember to search them, the scriptures, diligently. What a great thing for a parent to say to their child, that ye may, and here's what he wants his sons to get out of it, that ye may profit thereby. And I would that ye should keep the commandments of God, that ye may prosper in the land. He wants them to read the scriptures, to remember them, to search them so that they can profit thereby. It gives them the strength to keep the commandments, which will allow them to prosper in the land according to the promises which the Lord has made. 
What a great pleading. Yeah, you know, what's a really good example for parenting as well is that not only is, is King Benjamin telling his sons uh, that he wants them to s- search the scriptures diligently and to keep the commandments of God, but he's giving a why. He's not telling them this and saying, you need to do this because I said so. <laughs> you know? Yeah, understanding the principle behind those commandments is so important. Well, because it allows the person that is receiving, the child, to exercise their agency. Oh, if I keep the commandments of God, I'll be able to keep the Spirit with me, and he'll be able to instruct me on the way to go. Oh, well, yeah, that seems like a good option. I I, want to do that. Well, and if we understand the principles behind it, then we can obey the commandments and get into the Scriptures in the way that might be most beneficial to us rather than following someone else's formula. You know, even with Come Follow Me, we talked about this at the beginning. The goal is conversion. That's the principle that underlies our study. And so how we incorporate Come Follow Me into our families may be unique to our circumstances, but the principles are still the same. Right. And the admonition or the hope of King Benjamin in in his words that it will be profitable unto us. Yeah. You know, that it will have value. Mm-hmm. So in verse 8, Mormon tells us, and many more things did King Benjamin teach his sons which are not written in this book. Oh, we should go look Wait at the minute. other book then. Then, but we don't have the other book. Dang nabbit. I'm not sure, that we're, I'm not sure if we're going to get the other book. Maybe we will eventually, mm. but we don't have it. You know, that's so hard. For those of you who keep journals at all, be careful about what you write. You know, don't assume that your future readers are going to have any idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, give us. Here's a a great example of Mormon saying. Yeah, don't ever say, if you want to know more about this, go look in my other journal. (laughs) It's true because you don't know whether they'll have it or not. That's right. Darn it. It's awfully painful to the reader. Going on, uh, verses 9 through the rest of the chapter, he sets up some counsel that's given to Mosiah about the affairs of the kingdom. And he mentions that the purpose of why he's going to get everybody together at the end of verse 10, he says, I want everyone to know from my own mouth that you, Mosiah, thou art going to be the next king. You are a king and ruler over this people. And in verse 11, he says, I'm going to give this people a name. Now, the first part announcing Mosiah as a king is going to happen in our discussion today. But the new name is going to come in our next lesson. But those are two of the purposes for why he's bringing everyone together. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant part of this transition as well in verse 16. Here we have the transfer of the sacred relics. Now, we know from Omni that Amalekai, the last blood descendant that that we know of for sure, of Lehi— has handed over the plates of brass and the sword of Laban and, you know, the other sacred relics to King Benjamin. Well, King Benjamin has them, and he is now prepared to transition them to Mosiah, his his son, in verse 16. And moreover, he gave him charge concerning the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass and also the plates of Nephi. Now, these would have been probably the large plates of Nephi and the small plates of Nephi, Hmm. and also the sword of Laban and 
the ball or director which led our fathers through the wilderness which was prepared by the hand of the Lord that thereby they might be led, everyone according to the heed and diligence which they'd given to him. You know, it would be a lot shorter to just say the Liahona, but we're not going to get that name for another uh, another while. Yeah. (laughs) Not until Alma the Younger. That's right. Uh, But anyway, the important thing that I wanted to call out here is not only the importance of transitioning the plates, but they've certainly defined the sacred items that need to pass on. Mm -hmm. And these included the Sword of Laban and the Liahona, and it should be interesting to those of us in our day to recognize that these items were included when Moroni deposited the plates at the end of his life. Well, at least not the plates of Nephi per se. Oh, no, 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 no. I I didn't mean to say that. I was referring to the uh, sort of Laban and Ball and the Liahona. Great point. But uh, yeah, as far as which plates, that transitions over time, certainly. But the sort of Laban and the Liahona are, are certainly... Yeah, key items that they are a part of that all the way restoration moment. Yeah, verse eighteen takes us to Mosiah going and doing his father's commandments, and that is gathering everybody together so that King Benjamin can speak to them, and he carries out that order. Now, as we get on to chapters two and three, Susan Easton Black offers an interesting structure for the next few chapters. She calls them three orations. And in chapter 2, she identifies that King Benjamin is speaking here as a king. And maybe we can look for those elements as we examine his record, what he's saying to the people. In chapter 3, King Benjamin is now taken off the crown, so to speak. And he is speaking as a prophet and teaching the people through the words that an angel had taught him. Chapter 4 also has, she identifies as an oration, but we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4, but there's some information on it here on the slide. So let's take a look at the first oration. This is the beginning of King Benjamin's address. This is a quick aside, but there's been some kind of fascinating observations about King Benjamin's address And that would suggest that this was given on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as part of the Jewish holiday or the Jewish festival. For those of you who may be interested in more scholarly discussion about that, I would encourage you to check out Book of Mormon Central, our Know Why number 82. We'll put a link up. It's great discussion, great thought, and great tie-in to the Old Testament, certainly. Well, and John, you mentioned there's links in there, too, for other papers, so you can explore it further. By the way, if you've ever just watched a Know Why video, understand that that's only just a teaser for the information on the actual page for the Know Why, which has more text plus links to other articles that they have used for that. So if you ever that's watch true. one and then say, well, gosh, they didn't tell me as much as I wanted, go to the page. Yeah. That's what we link to when we uh, put our links in the description. So There's a lot more information in there, and it's organized in a very good, structured way for yeah, you to it's, just kind of zero in on what you want to know. Yeah, it's well laid out. So that will be of interest to some and not to others, but it's an option for you. Verse 5, and it came to pass that when they came up to the temple, remember Mosiah is gathering everyone, they pitched their tents round about every man according to his family consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters and their sons and their daughters and from the eldest down to the youngest, every family being separate one from another or distinctive. And they pitched their tents round about the temple, every man having his tent with the door thereof toward the temple. 
that thereby they might remain in their tents and hear the words which King Benjamin might speak. Now, here's a king. What does this say, where he gathers the people, what does this say about his priorities? He could have gathered them to his palace or to a state building, a Supreme Court building or something important like that. He gathers them to the temple. And even though there isn't room for everybody, that's where he wants to have it. And I like what that says about him and what he wants his people to understand about him. Yeah, not only that, but it's interesting that in that verse, you get a sense, too, of the society. The family certainly sounds like the fundamental unit of this particular society. Yeah, and it's important for everybody to be there. You know, everybody needs to hear this message. And even he references it later in his talk. He said, some of you may not be old enough for this, but tell you anyway. Mm -hmm. So... That's wonderful. And if we know the story, we know they have to make a tower so that everybody can hear. But even then, not everybody can hear. So at the end of verse 80, he points out that they made arrangements so that things are written down, should be written, and then sent forth among the people the words which he would speak. It's so important that they want to make sure everybody has access to it, which tells us something about their society. Uh, which is somewhat rare in ancient societies, and that is that there are enough readers within the society. The people are literate Mm. enough that sending his words out would mean something. That's a good point. To people. And so Mormon, our narrator, tells us, and these are the words which he has caused to be written. And then in verse 9, he starts King Benjamin's words, I assume from the record that he has because of those who wrote it down. And in verse 9, he sets the stage. These are King Benjamin's instructions to the people going forward. And we've got a general conference twice a year and and state conferences and ward conferences. Those are times when we should be thinking about these instructions. And here it is. He assembles them all together. And I have not commanded you to come up hither to trifle with the words which I shall speak. To trifle means to make of no importance, to treat lightly. So I didn't command you to come up here to take this lightly, but I did command you to come up here so that you should hearken unto me. And and that hearkening idea is more than just hearing it. It's listening. It's listening with the desire to obey. If you were to tell your kids to take out the garbage and say, hearken unto me, you're not just expecting them to say, yeah, I hear you. You expect them to act. And by the way, go ahead and use Harkin and see if that improves, you know, whether or not kids get their their jobs done. Or it'll, it'll at least uh, sharpen their sarcastic comeback, I would think. Well, you would hope that they would also offer some, some scriptural uh, language as well. Yeah, you know, at least you're doing something productive then. One, <laughs> either right. way. Either the yeah. garbage is out or they're getting to know the scriptures better. It's yeah. win-win. Win-win. Okay, so then we have the instructions to open your ears. I want you to, first of all, don't take it lightly. Secondly, hearken, listen with the intent to obey, and then open your ears that you may hear. And I assume what he's speaking of here is not just hearing, but spiritually hearing. Open your ears. That phraseology was used when we were talking about Isaiah and 2 Nephi, about how people's ears were heavy or people had shut their ears. He's saying, don't do that. Don't put your hand over the cup of living water that I'm ready to pour. You know, that's an interesting point. Jay, you know that I have children on the autism spectrum. And one of the things that we have to regularly do with them 
is if we are talking to them, we have to sometimes explain to them that I want you to listen with your body. Oh, meaning that's that awesome. their body is sitting reverently or they're standing, you know, not slouched or, or bent over in a different way, that they are actually facing me and they're, you know, looking eye to eye and so that I can tell that they are listening to what I have to say. I think that's an interesting analogy to the notion of listening with your spirit. You know, you are now yeah. focused on the spirit of the message, and you're paying attention. You're listening with your spirit, as it were. John, I will remember that every time I read this now. I love this. Listen <laughs> with your body. That, that says it all. That's excellent. So open your ears that you may hear and your hearts that you may understand. That's the other thing. Open your hearts for understanding. Think about the difference when we listen to a conference talk, say, just to listen to it. Versus when we keep asking the question, what am I supposed to get out of this? What am I supposed to understand? Uh, same with our scripture reading. And, and then your mind. So we've got to open our ears so we may hear, our hearts that we may understand, and our minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. That's the whole faculty. Hmm. That's how he's preparing them for his message. And quite powerful. We go on to verse 10. What's interesting about verse 10, 10 through 14, is that we get a real interesting insight to King Benjamin's character. At this point, all we know is that he's been a great warrior king. He seems to be a nice guy. But this gives us a much deeper insight to him as a person. Verse 10, I have not commanded you to come up hither that you should fear me or that you should think that I of myself am more than a mortal man. Now, I want to point out that fear could mean I don't want you to be afraid of me, or it could also mean simply I don't want you to reverence me or, or worship me as more than a mortal man. He knows his place. Verse 11, But I am like as yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities in body and mind. Yet I have been chosen by this people and consecrated by my father and was suffered by the hand of the Lord that I should be a ruler and a king over this people and have been kept and preserved by his matchless power to serve you with all the might, mind, and strength which the Lord hath granted unto me. I want to point out a couple of things in those last few words there. He wants to serve us with all the might, mind, and strength. We hear that phrase a lot or variations thereof in the scriptures throughout. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound like maybe Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 about Well, I was going to say Lord familiar, about? but I don't think I would have given you that reference. Well, and it doesn't need to necessarily be that reference, but that style of phraseology that permeates throughout the scriptures, not just the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants section 4 for example, but in the Old Testament too. And it probably has Old Testaments and perhaps even pre-Old Testament roots. And the other key word there, so he's going to serve us with all the might, mind, and strength which the Lord hath granted unto me. Now, there's a great deal of humility in that statement. He is recognizing that everything he is doing, everything that he is doing to serve, is what the Lord is giving him to do. That is profound, certainly for any ruler but in particular a monarch, for crying out loud, a king. Uh, verse 12, 
I say unto you that as I have been suffered to spend my days in your service, even up to this time, and have not sought gold, nor silver, nor any manner of riches from you, neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves of one another, nor that ye should murder or plunder or steal or commit adultery. Let's stop there for a minute. He's making it clear that he hasn't tried to make himself rich at the expense of his people. He has not gone out of his way to focus on imprisoning. I would suggest that uh, suffered to be confined in dungeons might mean a prison sentence for those who have broken the laws of the land, but also perhaps even referring to a a very common cultural practice of imprisoning people who can't pay their debts, Hmm. which is kind of fruitless because they can't earn money to pay their debts when they're in prison. But that's a whole other matter. It's interesting, too, because he's uh, we don't have any of the stories of these kings. We don't have any of the king stories over the last 400 years. But it's possible he's referencing kings they would have known from their history when they were a wicked people before Mosiah. That's a very good point. And to a culture that perhaps they had adopted that had some issues with it. You know, Mm. that maybe they were doing a lot of these things that he's saying, look, I haven't done these things. Mm. The fact that he calls out, I have not suffered that you should make slaves of one another. Slavery is a real common practice among a lot of particularly ancient cultures. Sure. And undoubtedly, there were slaves, if not in Zarahemla, uh, possibly even among the Nephites. But here is a call out to, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to do that. He's certainly referencing something that they're comparing this to. Yeah, absolutely. And then going on, that you not murder, plunder, or steal or commit adultery? Here's a summary of obviously using the Ten Commandments or at least the books of Moses as a foundation to their moral structure. This is a call out to, hey, we've put an end to this. But also, again, as Jay pointed out, this could have been a problem. You know, there could have been a lot of murder and uh, committing adultery and stealing, etc., in uh, the Zarahemla culture before. And, well, now we're putting an end to it. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Nor even have I suffered that you should commit any manner of wickedness and have taught you that you should keep the commandments of the Lord. Well, that obviously is a cinch then that the commandments of the Lord were at least part of their government structure. Mm-hmm. And not only the commandments, but the teaching of those commandments. In all things which he hath commanded you. Okay, so this is, I've taught you that you should keep the commandments of the Lord in all things which he hath commanded you. Verse 14, and even I myself have labored with mine own hands, that I might serve you, and that you should not be laden with taxes, and that there should nothing come upon you which was grievous to be borne. And of all these things which I have spoken, ye yourselves are witnesses this day. So in other words, he's not only calling out some important victories from his kingly reign, but I love the line at the very end, ye yourselves are witnesses. You know, I'm not just talking myself up here. You've seen this. You've seen this happen. You've experienced it. Well, and it's interesting to me, too, he seems to be setting the example of the way that they should live. The idea, I, I assume Economics 101, the idea that they 
weren't taxed a lot means that his government wasn't doing a lot of things for them. In other words, they were expected to work like he works, to take care of each other like he takes care of them. You know, he's setting the example of a benevolent ruler and expecting them to follow suit, to do that example. Exactly. And one of the other things to think about, too, when you talk about taxes and in his words, that there should nothing come upon you which was grievous to be born. Let's remember, okay, it's less than a thousand years ago that we had the separation of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, what was the primary reason for that separation? It was excessive taxes from King Solomon. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I, just to clarify, when you said it was a thousand years ago, we're talking about from this moment with King Benjamin. Oh, oh from King Benjamin. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for, for Just in case. That. So this is days of King Solomon. Israel's civil war came from uh, the people complaining to King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that our taxes are too high, and his response eventually was, well, you think they're high now, they're going to be even worse. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah, that was wasn't a motivator call. for them. Yeah. yeah. But again, that idea of grievous to be born. So he sets the example, and as they follow it, they'll be blessed. He's a profound leader, and certainly yeah. I think the leader of any society should take careful note of King Benjamin. He is clearly a, a great man among men as, as far as a leader. Well, and we seem to be leading up to a very famous verse. Absolutely. Verse 17. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. This, of course, is a very famous scripture, a uh, doctrinal mastery scripture. Do I have that right? You do. I do. Okay. One of the things that stood out to me this time around when I read this scripture is there was a quote that I came across that talks about defining knowledge, wisdom, and character. This is from Delbert L. Stapley. Now, unfortunately, the only strict reference I have for this quote is, quote, conference report. I hate that reference. The church, yes. Uh, unfortunately, the church does not have adequate means to search through general conference reports older than 1971. It is very likely that this is prior to 1971, and I've been searching for it, but I can't quite get it yet. I got this quote from the Deseret Book app has a, a daily quote, and this came up, and I thought, wow, With apparently no real references. No, their reference was conference report. I did try to find it, but I can't, so bear so that what in is mind. It? Elder Delbert L. Stapley tells us, quote, knowing everything that might be done is knowledge. Knowing what is right to do is wisdom. Doing it is character. Now, as that applies to Mosiah's, verbiage here. I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom. In other words, you are learning what is right to do. You now know that this is right to do. The proof of your character or the building of your character will be the application of that knowledge. But his motivation to this knowledge is the recognition that, hey, when you are serving other people, when you are, to use a more modern term from President Nelson, ministering, to other people, you are serving God. This is how you serve God. 
And it reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite church movies. I think we're going to throw that in here from Vincenzo Di Francesca. Enjoy. How then does one best serve God? Through hollow ritual and the recital of road to prayers? Near the end of his life, an ancient prophet and king gave the answer, the key, as to how one can best serve God. These are his words. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Serving, helping one another. Angelo, where is that scripture found? It's in the Old Testament. Somewhere. You know, I had that memorized on my mission just about. <laughs> it always makes me chuckle. So one other thing to talk about was 17, and that is, I can't really offer even a hypothetical version of this story, but you guys may know people that are in situations where sometimes doing the right thing doesn't feel good. Not in a spiritual sense, but in a hurt your heart kind of way. This is where to learn wisdom, sometimes you have to serve God by withholding help so that God can do his work, letting people fall so that God can help them to get to a place where they can change. That's a really hard place to be, but that's another piece to learning wisdom and serving your fellow beings. Sometimes it's withholding help in order to serve them best. Well, and not only that, but it's a challenge to your average person to be the recipient of service mm. sometimes. Yeah, that's And a good point. it should be helpful for each of us to remember uh, that when someone offers to give us service and we deny it because we're fine, right? we are denying them an opportunity to serve God. That's not very nice. <laughs> no, but it doesn't make you it any easier for me. No, it's hard. But it, it is. is. Hard. But that's the, that's right. the challenge. Though. You're absolutely that's right. And that challenge. is wisdom. Exactly. So in 19, we begin a really wonderful, I don't know what to call it. It's just this great... Um, you could imagine a lawyer standing up in a spiritual court and offering this to the people. He says, And behold also, if I, whom ye call your king, who has spent his days in your service, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you? Oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who has created you and has kept and preserved you and has caused that ye should rejoice and has granted that ye should live in peace one with another. I say unto you, if ye should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath that ye may live and move and do according to your own will and even supporting you from one moment to another. I say, if ye should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. It's such a slam into perspective. Uh, yeah. You know, it's such a powerful oration. Well, and he keep goes it going. On. Verse 22. And behold, all that he requires of you 
is to keep his commandments. And he has promised you that if ye would keep his commandments, ye should prosper in the land. And he never doth vary from that which he hath said. Therefore, if ye do keep his commandments, he doth bless you and prosper you. And now, in the first place, he hath created you and granted unto you your lives, for which ye are indebted to him. That was very nice. Yeah. And secondly, he doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you. And therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? And now I ask, can ye say aught of yourselves? I answer you, nay. Ye cannot say that ye are even as much as the dust of the earth. Yet ye were created of the dust of the earth, but behold, it belongeth to him who created you. Now I'd like to clarify that, but behold, it belongeth to him who hath created you. He's referring to the dust and you. (laughs) And I, even I, whom ye call your king, am no better than ye yourselves are. For I am also of the dust. And ye behold that I am old, and I'm about to yield up this mortal frame to its mother earth. What an image. Yeah. Wow. You know, sometimes we could get caught up in the phrasing in 25 that we're not even as much as the dust of the earth. It's important to know that King Benjamin here is trying to put us in a perspective of a big picture. Because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we raise ourselves way up past where we need to be. I love well, this phrase. We often phrase do. We from, think a lot of ourselves. We sure do. I love this phrase from President Uchtdorf in the 2011 conference. He said, This is a paradox of man. Compared to God, man is nothing. Yet we are everything to God. So this comparison is what King Benjamin's making. But it doesn't speak to what our value is to God. We just need to make sure we're in the right place in the equation. So we're dust, but we're very special dust. We are. We're great dust. (laughs) (laughs) He loves this dust. All right. Moving on. Later in the chapter, verse 29, we get, Moreover, I say unto you that I have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, that I might declare unto you, what is he going to do? What is he going to declare? This was the reason he called everybody together, that I might declare unto you that I can no longer be your teacher nor your king. For even at this time, my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while attempting to speak unto you. But the Lord God doth support me and hath suffered me that I should speak unto you and hath commanded me that I should declare unto you this day that my son Mosiah is a king and a ruler over you. So here's the transition. Here's the reason why we're calling together. Now, we're getting a lot more instruction than just, hey, you know what? My son, Mosiah, he's going to take over. You know, there's a charge that he gives after he makes that announcement in uh, 31, as ye have kept my commandments. He refers to what they have been doing, what they did under his reign, and what they should continue to do. And he gives them some warnings in 32. Oh, my people, beware lest there shall arise contentions among you. Remember, he spent his whole kingship trying to get rid of those contentions. And he identifies where they come from. 
And ye list to obey the evil spirit, which was spoken of by my father Mosiah. Now, that's an interesting reference because we don't actually have any of the writings of his father Mosiah. So here we have a reference that apparently the people are supposed to know about, but we don't have access to that. Darn you, journal writers referencing (laughs) things we don't have. But he goes on to point out that this same warning was given by many holy prophets down through Lehi, the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. And in 37, so he goes on to continue to encourage them to stay close to the Lord. In 37, he defines that what it means to kind of list to obey the evil spirit. He says, if you know the gospel and then you purposefully rebel against what you know to be true, at 37, I say unto you, the man that doeth this, the same cometh out in open rebellion against God. Therefore, he listeth to obey the evil spirit spirit and becometh an enemy to all righteousness. Now, we may say, well, I know this is wrong, but then I do it anyway, and then, you know, I repent and so forth. This idea of open rebellion is to know something's true and fight against it with no sense of shame or desire to want to make it right. Sin and messing up is a part of the process. It takes us to repentance, repentance helps us to change, and we move on. This is a different Mm. thing. This is well, maybe we know what it feels like to be in open rebellion against God. but I think we do. It's an attitude. Maybe we'd call it sinning with purpose. Exactly. And there's a great quote that the Institute Manual has from General Conference, April 1990. This is from Gordon B. Hinckley saying, quote, I recall a bishop telling me of a woman who came to get a recommend. When asked if she observed the word of wisdom, she said that she occasionally drank a cup of coffee. She said, now, Bishop, you're not going to let that keep me from going to the temple, are you? To which he replied, Sister, surely you will not let a cup of coffee stand between you and the house of the Lord. Mm. End quote. That's a good perspective. It is all about attitude. Yeah, and intention. Well, so... He wraps this portion up, this charge to the people. He wraps it up. And again, this is him as a king. He wraps up his portion as a king. Middle of 40, he says that you might understand. I pray that ye should awake to a remembrance of the awful situation of those that have fallen into transgression. And moreover, I like moreover. There's that sense of, look, this is more important than the other. I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. So on to chapter 3. Yes, on to chapter 3. And as Jay pointed out, this is now he has figuratively or perhaps even literally taken off his crown. The crown is off. And now he is speaking to the people as a prophet, as a teacher, as in his own words. Well, and this is interesting because as he is preparing to do this, he's telling them about kind of a big event. But he talks about it, I don't know, almost as in passing. Uh, In verse 2, he says, I shall tell you what I'm about to tell you are made known unto me by an angel from God. And he said unto me, awake. And I awoke. Okay, well, this sounds like a big thing. 
before we go on to the angel's words, let me offer something to consider. The messages that are in chapter 3 are remarkable, very powerfully about Christ, about the fall, about atonement. There are some pretty interesting parallels with another prophet who had prophesied just before this in a different place. Uh, Remember, we talked about how in the southern part of the land, that group that Zenith brought to re-inherit the land of Nephi, that we've already had Zenith, we've already had King Noah, and we've already had Abinadi, and Abinadi has been killed by the people. He's given them his message. He's preached to the king and to his wicked priests, and they've disregarded his message, all except the Alma. So he's been killed by the time that King Benjamin is preaching. So here's an interesting parallel. This was introduced by Todd Parker in an article that was on the um, Neil A. Maxwell Institute website. They've taken a lot of articles down, and I don't know if they're in the process of sorting them or what, but I've got a link here for where it was previously. But there's a list here of parallels between the angel's message to King Benjamin and Abinadi's address to King Noah in chapters 15 through 17. So you can look at this and just see if you're compelled by it. I simply offer it for consideration. But here's what would be really cool. If Abinadi was in fact the angel that came to King Benjamin, then, and I hope this doesn't sound confusing, if it is, it'll be explained in coming episodes, then the message that he gives to King Benjamin, King Benjamin gives to the people, and some of those converted people, 16 of them, travel down in a few years from now, from where we are in the story, travels down to find out whatever happened to Zenith and his people. These are the wicked leftovers who rejected Abinadi. And the first, one of the first things he does, this group of 16, is preach King Benjamin's message to them, which may have included then Abinadi's message that they rejected, but now they're getting it from these guys after a lot of experiences have happened so that they're much more humbled and receptive to it. And this ultimately leads to them coming back to Zarahemla and being baptized by the very Alma that they rejected. You know, it's this really great parallel. And when we look at Abinadi and say, oh, he only had one convert. Well, maybe not. Maybe he was given this other opportunity to make sure this message got to who it was supposed to get to. For all that he went through, I certainly hope that's true. Yeah, it would be neat if it was. But the point is, there are some interesting parallels. It's worth considering. Now, on to chapter three. Yeah, so let's talk about the vision here. You know, it's very similar in some ways to like the visions described by Joseph Smith, or in a way it's kind of like the calling of Samuel from the Old Testament. The angel comes, he said unto me, awake, and I awoke, and behold, he stood before me. Well, and then he said, awake. Right, awake. So here's my question is, I wonder if the first awake is a physical awake, and Mm -hmm. maybe the second awake is a spiritual awake, when he says, awake and hear the words. So maybe that parallel of awake in the physical body, awake in the spiritual body to prepare to hear the word, which I, the angel, will tell you. Exactly. Listen to me with your body and Mm. listen to me with your heart. With your, with your spirit. Now it's time to pay attention. And he said unto me, Awake and hear the words which I shall tell thee. For behold, I am come to declare unto you the glad tidings of great joy. And he goes on, really this whole chapter, to give us an amazing amount of information. So let's go on. Verse 4. For the Lord hath heard thy prayers. Okay, that's an important thing. This is something that King Benjamin 
asked for. Maybe not specifically an angelic visitor, but Hmm. there's information here that he asked for further clarity on, right? Yeah. And hath judged of thy righteousness. Okay, so King Benjamin has been keeping the commandments, right? He's not only asking for things, but he's been keeping the commandments and, and doing his best to obey the Spirit and to tune into the Spirit. And hath sent me to declare unto thee that thou mayest rejoice and that thou mayest declare unto thy people that they may also be filled with joy. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay and shall go forth amongst men working mighty miracles such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. Now, I'd like to point out something here. In verse 5, that term, the Lord omnipotent, that doesn't appear in the scriptures very often. As a matter of fact, the word omnipotent, period, doesn't appear in the scriptures very often. That term is unique to King Benjamin. He refers to the Lord as the Lord omnipotent. Now, there's a real close term, that you find in Revelation, Revelation 19.6, where John refers to the Lord God omnipotent. But that's, you know, it, it's interesting. So let's talk about that. Jay, what does omnipotent mean? Well, if I had all power, I could tell you. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Omnipotence means that the Lord has all power. This is the all-powerful Lord who reigneth and who was and is from all eternity to all eternity. And so he's describing Jesus Christ in his mortal life, coming down amongst the children of men to work many mighty miracles. In verse 6, And he shall cast out devils, or the evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. Now, I'm going to call out a couple of things in this verse, but one that I want to make sure that we're clear on. The phrase, blood cometh from every pore, is only described in the Garden of Gethsemane by one of the gospel writers. It was Luke. Now, there are many Christian scholars who will debate whether that was actual blood coming from every pore or if it was metaphorical or, you know, you know, maybe that it seemed like it because of something in the area. This is fascinating because we have here a prophetic pronouncement that, yes, there will be blood coming from every pore. And this happened 100 years, more than 100 years, before Christ would be born. But the other element here, the notion of the suffering of the atonement, the suffering of temptations, but not only temptations, but pain, thirst, fatigue, etc. There's a really great quote that I got out of the Institute Manual from Neil A. Maxwell. This is General Conference, April 1985. Quote, Imagine Jehovah, the creator of this and other worlds, astonished. Jesus knew cognitively what he must do, but not experientially. He had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process of an atonement before. Thus, when the agony came in its fullness, 
It was so much, much worse than even he, with his unique intellect, had ever imagined. No wonder an angel appeared to strengthen him. The cumulative weight of all mortal sins, past, present, and future, pressed upon that perfect, sinless, and sensitive soul. All our infirmities and sicknesses were somehow, too, a part of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. The anguished Jesus not only pled with the Father that the hour and cup might pass from him, but with this relevant citation, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Had not Jesus, as Jehovah said to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Had not his angel told a perplexed Mary, For with God nothing shall be impossible? Jesus' request was not theater. In this extremity did he, perchance, hope for a rescuing ram in the thicket? I do not know. His suffering, as it were, enormity multiplied by infinity, evoked his latter soul cry on the cross, and it was a cry of forsakenness. Even so, Jesus maintained this sublime submissiveness, as he had in Gethsemane, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. End quote. I love that. Uh-huh. Going on, verse 8, And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and his mother shall be called Mary. And that's remarkable in the sense that that's the first time in ancient scripture that we have Jesus' mother's name. Nephi saw her, but there's no indication he knew her name. As we get closer now to the birth of the Savior, we see more information being revealed about what's going to happen. Exactly. Now, there's a line in that verse that might be a little confusing to some. Jesus is being referred to as the Father, the Father of heaven and earth. There's a neat quote in the Come Follow Me manual about that. President Joseph F. Smith, this is from uh, the teachings of the presidents of the church. This is the Joseph F. Smith manual from that. Quote, Jesus Christ, whom we also know as Jehovah, was the executive of the Father, Elohim, in the work of creation. Jesus Christ, being the creator, is consistently called the Father of heaven and earth. And since his creations are of eternal quality, he is very properly called the eternal Father of heaven and earth. End quote. Nice. So hopefully that'll add a little more clarity. But then the last two verses I wanted to go over, this is verse 9 and 10. And lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all, they shall consider him a man, and say that he hath a devil, and shall scourge him, and shall crucify him. And he shall rise the third day from the dead, and behold, he standeth to judge the world. And behold, all these things are done, that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. There was an awful lot that was given to us in just those few verses. Yeah, for sure. A very 
defined play-by-play of everything that we've read in the New Testament, certainly. And it's kind of interesting to me, I was thinking just as we were going through it this time around, it would have been perhaps beneficial to the apostles at that time to have had this type of prophecy so that when the Lord told them that he was going to be given up to man to be crucified, that they might understand it a little bit. Oh, yeah, 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 King Benjamin talked about this, remember? (laughs) Right. Yeah, so even though he did try to to let them know during his lifetime, it it, uh, it would have been better if they'd learned it in primary, I suppose. I suppose, well, and, and you bring up a really good point. If they didn't understand when the Savior explained it to them, what chance is anyone else going to have? Yeah. Well, so in 16 through 22, we have some more words from the angel, but now it's about the fall and the atonement, the redemption related to that. So we have Christ and what he's going to do, and then we have where it fits into the plan of salvation. And there's a very famous verse in verse 19 that is often uh, misquoted. (laughs) I I hear this very constantly. People say, well, the natural man is an enemy to God. Okay, but that's only part of what he's saying. The natural man, in fact, is not normally an enemy to God. The natural man... Yeah, let's let's shall we, shall we read through it? Yeah. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless mm. oh, there's a qualifier here. Let's pay attention to the qualifier. Unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. And becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. So you could make the argument that, in fact, it's saying the natural man is an enemy to God because in order for him not to be, he has to put off the natural man. Here's what I mean. Elder Hubie Brown offered this description on uh, sex drives. He said the powerful sex drives are instinctive. Now, that's probably typical of the natural man as we think of it, although there's lots of other traits. He says they're instinctive, which is to say God-given, and therefore they are not evil per se. In order that these instincts be controlled and directed by proper channels, they should only be indulged in marriage. But his point there is God created us, and even drives that we have— are not evil per se. But how do we use them? Do we yield to the enticings of the Spirit? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say that my body is hungry. That drive, that natural man, wants food. And is that good or bad? Well, it depends on what we're doing. If my body says I'm hungry, and I say, well... I appreciate that body. I recognize you're hungry. That's neither good nor bad. But we are fasting right now. And so you're going to have to yield to the enticings of the Spirit because we're fasting. Yeah, but I'm hungry. I appreciate that. I hear you. But you're going to have to wait. So recognizing even when we feel things like things related to uh, sexuality or anger or whatever, it's okay to say, hey, body, I hear you, natural man. I hear you but we're not doing that right now. I recognize what you're offering, 
but right now we're going to yield to the enticings of the spirit. There is a place and a time. There may be times when the body says, I'm hungry, and you say, oh, that thank you, body. That was very kind of you. Let's go ahead and eat. And there's other times when it needs to be in submission. But the intention is what's important. I would propose that our natural instincts, um, drives aren't inherently bad. Now, what do we do with them? That's where it becomes different. Well, and I also might suggest that there might be a situation here, uh, a context that's missing to us. You know, we kind of interpolated in the last chapter that there may have been a problem, some pretty rampant problems among the people of Zarahemla, a very impulsive things like murder and stealing and committing adultery uh, that we had to address. And perhaps this is King Benjamin's opportunity to say, you know, guys, the if it feels good, do it generation is over. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah. You've well, seen the outcome yeah. of that. Yeah. And he flips it around and look at that list that we need to become as a child submissive. Well, that's not really a natural man tendency, I don't think. Meek. One thing that's interesting about the idea of meek is it's not weak to be Meek is to have power and have it under complete control. Mm -hmm. So imagine a big, powerful guy gently petting a little kitten. You know, that (laughs) it's you can't be meek without being powerful. So humble, patient, full of love and willing to submit to what the Lord sees fit to inflict upon you. These are all important traits, but God's given us our bodies to be able to do this life with. They're wonderful. They're amazing, but they need to be in constant submission to the spirit of the Lord and the enticings of that spirit. Absolutely. So then King Benjamin closes his prophetic address, or as we discussed, these are still words from the angel in verse 23. And now I have spoken the words which the Lord God hath commanded me. And thus saith the Lord, they shall stand as a bright testimony against this people at the judgment day, whereof they shall be judged every man according to his works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And if they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence they can no more return. Therefore they have drunk out of the cup of the wrath of God, which justice could no more deny unto them than it could deny that Adam should fall because of his partaking of the forbidden fruit. Therefore mercy could have claim on them no more forever, for their torment is as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flames are unquenchable, and whose smoke ascendeth up forever and ever. Thus hath the Lord commanded me. Amen. And thus ends the words of the angel. You know, I wanted to leave one last thought. This is out of the Come, Follow Me manual. This is from Elder David A. Bednar. And this is from the October 2007 General Conference. Quote, It is the atonement of Jesus Christ that provides both a cleansing and redeeming power that helps us to overcome sin and a sanctifying and strengthening power that helps us to become better than we ever could by relying only upon our own strength. The infinite atonement is for both the sinner and for the saint in each of us, end quote. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true.
for the Lord God has spoken it. Thank you, King Benjamin. And thank <laughs> you for all of you who have been listening in. I think that's all the time that we have today. We're grateful for the time that we've had to discuss this. We hope that you're getting into the scriptures. King Benjamin has some wonderful words yet to share with us, so be sure that you read the next assignment, and we'll see you next time. We'll look forward to it. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>